The Spin-Off Podcast Network. We believe where you live shouldn't decide your destiny and that any place can be a place of learning. So much of modern life has a handy home delivery option. Why not your education? Maybe you'll start your degree in the same space you share with your whānau or from that corner of the spare room that catches the most sun. Start your new what at the place where we're can be anywhere, online or on campus. Massey, New Zealand's leading online university. Apply now at massey.ac.nz. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, haere mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, ngā kōrero whaitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. On this episode, I'm joined in the studio by Veronica Shale and from Palmerston North via Zoom by Professor Julian Hayes. Together, we'll take a close, multifaceted look at our food supply chains, what they are, how they work, whether they're still fit for purpose, and how we could look to make them future-proof. Veronica is the Executive Director and, in her own words, Chief Cheerleader of Fair Food New Zealand, a food rescue charity which diverts food from landfill and distributes it to more than 50 charities and community groups across Auckland. Professor Hayes is the head of Massey University School of Food and Advanced Technology and a specialist in post-harvest physiology. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Julian, can I start with you and ask the big question, what do we mean when we say supply chain in terms of food? Yeah, it's a, it's one of those ideas that is intuitively sort of obvious when you think about it. Um, food is grown somewhere, um, whether it's an animal or a plant on a farm, and consumers are located somewhere completely different. Um, in New Zealand's case, they're often right on the other side of the world. So the supply chain is the linked businesses that take the food from where it's produced all the way through to where it's consumed. So you kind of indicated there that we have an unusual situation in Aotearoa. How mm. would you describe our exports and and how many things we export and how does it look in terms of what we keep here and what Mm. we export? So frankly, we are weird in OECD terms. So there's not many um, affluent nations in the world which are so heavily dependent on producing food for export. So so we, we, we... Something like 95% of the dairy products that we produce in New Zealand are sold offshore. It's staggering the uh, the amount of that production that leaves the country. And in a sense, this is a triumph of the sort of the World Trade Organization way of looking at the world. We're not all comfortable with a straight capitalist system in the world, but we don't get to change that. But it's just the idea that some countries are really good at doing some things and other countries are really good at doing others. And why don't we let countries do what they're good at and trade the goods internationally? If we were Australia, you'd just dig a hole in the ground and sell whatever you find. Lucky them. Uh, But for New Zealand, we're not blessed with the same 
same amount of mineral wealth, so, whereas what we do have is pretty fertile land, a pretty benign climate, usually the right amount of water, although, of course, we're seeing more and more extreme events, both floods and droughts. Mm. Yeah, mm. well, 2020 is an extreme mm. event, you could kind of say. Mm. Veronica, tell us about what you do with Fair Food New Zealand, and I know you distribute to more than 50 charities. How many people does that end up feeding? So while we're not a household name, we are in thousands of households every week. We're in about three to 4,000 whānau food parcels. That's helping feed about 15,000 to 20,000 people a week. And what's in one of those whānau food packages? We focus on perishable, nutritious food like um, fruit and vegetables and dairy, uh, protein and bread. And that traditionally complements what uh, the food banks can supply, which are your dried white staples, your pastas, your flour, etc. Yeah, the white food group. Yes. Yeah. So we try to bring some colour to the plate. And where do they usually come from, everything that ends up in one of your kai boxes? Um, we're on the road every day rescuing from supermarkets like Countdown and Faro and growers, manufacturers and, and other ad hoc um, food donors. Uh, we bring it back to our base. We hand sort it with our volunteers. We've got an amazing band of about 200 volunteers. Um, groups come in every day. We hand sort and we allocate that to our charity groups who we know um, well, who we have met, and we try and give them really appropriate food and appropriate levels of food. Have you seen a rise in need in the last year? Absolutely. We've seen a a growth both in need from um, what's in the supply chain, but also what people that are in in need. So in 2019, we rescued like 120,000 tonnes across the year. Um, We're now doing that or did do that last year every month. What would you say about the impacts of COVID-19, the pandemic, and how it's impacted food supply in Aotearoa to start with? Um, well, yeah, last year was quite quite the event. Um, we saw a massive amount of local disruption in, in food business closures, panic buying that impacted um, both fulfilment and also forecasting. And of course, growers unable to harvest or deliver crops um, because of logistic issues and they were ploughing them into the ground. You saw farmers with surplus surplus stock and, and they're still breeding and hospitality in, in total limbo. Um, yeah, so you saw an amazing surplus of food um, coming out of the supply chain last year. And what would you both say about how agile we've been in adjusting? <laughs> well, as a food rescue charity, that is our thing. That's our lane. So we rescue really good surplus food from the supply chain and get it to people in need. So when this happened, we had to scale up considerably. Um, and we managed to do that by you know, collaborating with these amazing West Auckland businesses and our local community to have these four pop-up hubs all around Waitakere to, to answer that call. It okay. sounds like you actually just had to innovate very quickly. Yes, we had to literally scale up overnight. We went from being um, three vehicles, three drivers, Drivers, uh, a general manager, 70 volunteers to, you know, no volunteers um, and having to find yeah, overnight answers to, answers to this epic, epic problem and I guess opportunity to tackle the surplus food and, and feed people in need. Um, so big ups to actually West Auckland and everyone that was involved in that. You know, we got a call literally the third day, we've got 26,000 eggs, what can you do with them? And we were fortunate enough to have a response to that. Which is hugely stressful for the suppliers, isn't it, Julian? Yes. So if, if I could kind of 
switch that away from the wonderful work that has been done there to avoid food wastage and to make sure that it's available to people, especially those at the bottom of the heap who struggle in our New Zealand uh, society, but to think of it in global terms. We are so fortunate and we forget so easily how we have dodged the majority of the impact of a global pandemic. And globally, there are some terrible stories of the disruption to uh, supply chains. And it's driven political risk for nations, um, driven public policy. So, for example, Singapore just did a, a very rapid reassessment of its situation something like 95% of their food is imported currently. And they said 30% by 2030. So 30% of the food that will feed their nation, the same size as New Zealand, 5 million people, is they are determined will be locally produced by 2030, which is a pretty fierce and dramatic agenda. <laughs> so yeah. what does that system change look like? Tell us a little bit, you know, what you yeah. know about how they're going to achieve that. It, it is extraordinary. And of course, it's it's so different from the New Zealand situation. So an island nation where the, the urban population pretty much sprawls over the entire land surface. So they are heavily interested in this vertical horticulture concept where you can adapt the edges of your buildings or the roof of your building and begin to grow plants in a very industrial technological setting, managing the heat and the light and the waste disposal and producing food right close to where people are working in an office. It's brilliant, but it's actually massively energy consumptive to make the materials and to manage the production systems. And New Zealand should rightly say, hey, look, why don't we develop technology for you? But we don't need that system in our lovely country. We've got a, a low population density generally spread around the country. We'll manage growing the old fashioned way. Thanks very much. <laughs> because the old fashioned way is in tune with seasons, not trying to produce manufacture yeah. situations where crops can grow. But what would you say, Veronica, about how connected we are to the seasons, to what our whenua is actually designed to grow? Uh, I can only speak from it from kind of our lens, and there'll be other experts to talk talk on that point and, and probably actually in the room. What we see at the probably the last mile is what we call what we do uh, in, in tackling food waste and that end of things, the last mile, um, is we see an absolute surplus and abundance of food from all sorts of seasons. So obviously, you know, we've become very used to having food available to us 24-7 and out of season and, and food that has to be super perfect and beautiful. So there's a little bit of a disconnect, obviously, obviously happening. But under the ground at grassroots, what we're definitely seeing is is the rise and rise in the appreciation of, um, I guess, the old world of the indigenous practices of local community um, gardens, of collaborations like that. Um, and that's really, really encouraging. And in Waitakere, especially um, the coordination between a group called Kai West to, to foster that and those learnings is, is amazing. And I guess if we think about Matariki and how it's a time of harvest and then preparation for the winter months ahead, it's interesting, isn't it, Julian, to look at how that practice um, seats us in what we're experiencing outside, but the demand, as you say, is not perhaps in sync. Is that what you would have seen and witnessed? Yeah, yes, it's a, it's 
really a source of kind of global confusion because we live at a time where we've never had such good access to food year round and from places that we can't imagine where the products were grown. So we can access tea and coffee from the tropics or bananas every week of the year and we don't stop and think, oh, I wonder if it's banana season in the Philippines. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, there's going to be a bunch of bananas down there at the supermarket. So, so it transfers through so that there's very few products, maybe like asparagus, where you look forward to, oh, it's November, maybe, you know, maybe we'll find asparagus on the shelves now. Um, but there's really not many that we think of as seasonal. But of course, all of those fruit and vegetables are very seasonal. And the reason we can access them all year round is because we now import them if they're out of season in New Zealand, or we store them for very long times. And we do that through smart science, and we do it in a way that preserves the nutrition value. So it's a great outcome for people. I do sort of think back to traditional farming systems and and we, it's easy to romanticise that perhaps in the past we were closer to the land and we understood seasonality and we worked in harmony with nature. Particularly in the last 10,000 years of settled agriculture, we've basically emerged from a time when famines, local famines, were common and where the seasonality meant you simply couldn't get access to some fruit and veg all the way through the long cold winter months. So you had a pretty narrow diet um, to survive and then you gorged on whatever was available when it when it came to you. Yeah, so that does mean that we're eating things that our bodies um, aren't actually used to, yeah, I guess, at a yeah. DNA level. I noticed that definitely for Māori. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. In terms of access, what you were talking about is, yes, we can get strawberries all year round, but they're not mm. the same price. They're hugely yeah. expensive yep. at mm. certain times, and some people just won't choose to buy them um, or can't choose mm. to buy them. What would you say in terms of inequities, Veronica, and what has been highlighted by COVID-19? Are we just seeing more of what was actually there, or has COVID-19 created more inequity, in your opinion? Um, of food access especially. Yeah, um, inequities in Aotearoa have always existed um, and but most definitely COVID has shone a light on that and in fact has brought more people into that into that kind of space. You know, middle New Zealanders paying market rents on um, minimum wage. You know, that, that's a tough that's a tough gig. And we saw a lot more of them in, in the food bank lines and they did not expect to be there. So COVID has most definitely um, shone a light on these inequities. Um, what I can probably talk to is um, last year through COVID, how much, and this was so surprising to me, a treat when people saw fruit and vegetables, that was deemed a treat. When they saw good dairy and protein, that was a treat. And that's sad in a country like New Zealand, which has so much great surplus food um, to go around. So affordability is definitely an issue. Uh, you know, food insecurity, um, you know, it, you, you need affordability, you need access, you need to be able to utilise the food and needs to be available. And in, in, a, in a COVID world, those things are compromised. So what happens to surplus food usually if there's not people like you and your organisation, Fair Food, that steps in? Uh, Where does it come from and where does it usually end up if you don't step in? Well, we rescue food um, from supermarkets, growers, manufacturers, all sorts. And, um, you know, as it says in the T-shirt, we're trying to feed people, not not landfill. Um, We'd like to say a lot of it doesn't get dumped, but a lot of it gets dumped. Yes, you know, everyone does their best to forecast. Everyone does their best to um, price reduce. Um, do volume discounts, et cetera, to, to, to move that 
Um, but at the end of the day, sometimes you have shocks to the system or the weather's wrong um, or a product's dented. It's not as beautiful as it needs to be. So you have the surplus food and it has to go somewhere. So that's where we step in to, to rescue that and get it to people in need. You know, we hand sort it, we allocate it, we're working closely with our community and what they need. But unfortunately, I think there's still a lot um, a lot being being dumped. What could happen in the you know, supply chain to so that there's not so much surplus, Julian? Mm. Uh, these are really tough questions. So um, our whole modern economic system has decided that just-in-time delivery is the most efficient way uh, to get products from point A to point B. So it, it was recognised that it costs a lot of money to warehouse or, worse still, to cool store um, food uh, and to have a large stockpile available for redistribution. So we've created what, to my mind, seem unreasonably risky supply chains where the assumption is that the product, because last year you could get it from here to there in a particular time period, you think, okay, this year we'll be able to do the same. We have orders for this particular week of this month. We will ship it on this day. And then to our horror, you discover that actually that ship has been diverted because there is a real challenge at the moment with uh, the global supply chains. Shipping is disrupted in many ports in Asia, for example, uh, partly because the labour is being um, having to be checked for its health status. They have to have shifts that they can put on and put off if there's big COVID outbreaks. Um, so ships end up being stuck at sea waiting to unload in ports and Actually, New Zealand, again, as we've said before, we're very remote. We're not necessarily the most profitable run. So if your ship has missed a little window to zip off to New Zealand, it'll go to the States because States to Europe is always going to be profitable. So there are, you know, the presumption of just-in-time delivery is that everything will work smoothly and you've got the minimum of holding capacity along the way. And I suspect that we may need to shift some of those presumptions and build in a little bit more um, risk aversion so that there is, at least for storable goods, that there is a little bit more warehousing and stockpiling along the, along the path to allow for these what should be pretty foreseeable um, crises that disrupt supply chains. And does that mean it's time to reconsider how we eat? <laughs> that is a separate topic, and I love it. I think that, yes, absolutely, we should be reconsidering how we eat. Um there was a wonderful and surprising paper that came out a couple of years ago in The Lancet, which is one of the top medical journals in the world. And it was called, I've got it on my desk, Food in the Anthropocene. And they're just taking a really big picture look and saying, we have changed this world to the point where it's no longer a geological era. It should be called the Anthropocene because we are so much responsible for the changes of our climate and land use in this, in this beautiful world. And so what should we be doing in global terms, in terms of the diet that we consume and the way that food is produced? And it's a, one of these mega papers with hundreds of authors, um, but it takes a very thoughtful look at the possibility of feeding 10 billion people good food um, and we may have to make some compromises to what we're used to. So, for example, um, every country, as it becomes more affluent, increases its proportion of animal fat in the diet. It's just it's just what people do. It's Again, I presume it's part of our human programming. It's like, oh, that's a treat. So let's eat more of that. Now we can afford it. Um, 
but we know that it's more energy efficient to consume plant foods. So we don't actually have to, we don't have to flip flop. We don't have to abandon consuming um, good quality animal products, but we certainly shouldn't be eating as much as we do. And we shouldn't be encouraging others to consume huge amounts of, of animal fats. So, but people, you and I, are terrible at taking someone else's advice about our diet, frankly. We are absolutely hopeless. We, you know, and suddenly we start the nanny state argument that someone on high is telling me what I should do and I want to be free to make my own choices. So how do we educate an entire nation to say, hey guys, what about choosing a diet that's better for you and better for the planet? Really, really hard. And so, uh, you know, there was one attempt a few years ago where uh, on actually on the basis of a simple nutrition analysis, they showed that a discount on healthy food was produced far more durable change in, in poor people's purchasing habits than giving them heaps of information or giving mm. them some incentive. And that was where the concept, which was briefly a, a political party's choice, um, uh, was to say, let's take GST off fresh fruit and veg, for example. So in New Zealand, that's about as far as we're comfortable with in terms of what's effectively a subsidy. We have this mantra that we, you should choose to grow stuff that you can grow profitably. We're not going to pay you to grow it just because we think it's a good idea. And so we've gone away from the idea of subsidies, and I, I support that. But now we're left with exactly, as you say, the fact that things like fruit and vegetables become just too expensive for ordinary Kiwis. So how do we encourage them to choose those products and to use them well? Yeah. And another unhelpful thing that sometimes people who uh, don't have as many choices financially are told is just grow a garden. Yeah. <laughs> how often do you hear that? And, and is it as simple as that, Veronica? What are the challenges when we're talking about creating your own food? Oh, yeah, I wish it was that easy. Um, you know, some people don't even have the fridge or the freezer to store the food. Some people don't have the baking tray, whatever, to make a loaf of bread. You know, it just seems, it seems so foreign to us in New Zealand, but it's really real. Um, and people are living in uh, compromised situations, in emergency housing, with, the, with inadequate kitchen facilities. Um, but I think, you know, together... Together we're stronger, and and it is these community gardens ha have a great role to play in, in tandem at bringing people people to that these shared spaces that we should probably encourage more. Um, yeah, so we get asked that all the time. Now I appreciate in food rescue we're perhaps perhaps the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, but you know we believe that food. Um, and good food, good nutritious food, that's what we really focus on, is is absolutely a human right and everyone should have fair access to really good food. Because that's the irony and that's the pull, isn't it, Julian, that we have an oversupply in the end of food and we're not getting it to the people that we need to accept, you know, in your case, uh, but you can't get to everybody. If we do need to change, where do we start, Julian, in terms of our supply chain? Like you were saying, it's a, do we need to focus on uh, less animal-based food? And that's a hard one when it comes to how New Zealand farmers define themselves, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So th I was very careful to say that yeah. it's in terms of a person's <laughs> dietary choices, we're talking about reducing their, their reliance on animal protein. We're not saying eliminate it. Mm. And there's been quite a bit of public debate about the fact that actually 
actually New Zealand does feed 40 million people around the world, but it's not the starving people in Yemen. We're not supplying food to them. Um, that, thank heavens the United Nations tries to, to do that. We feed fancy food to people who can afford it. And if we can find a more valuable market, we'll shift to that one. So, uh, you know, China has come rocketing up the stakes as its middle class has grown and it's now dominating many of the purchase um, routes for our for our products, where in the past it was only a, a minor player. So, so actually, for our farmers, I don't think it's fair to say you must change. I don't think that's the point. I think we should rely on the fact that we're a great source of sustainable, potentially more sustainably produced products than many other countries can deliver. Um, what we need to look at is our internal social settings within the country. How can we improve both education and access to uh, to materials? With with our undergraduate students, um, young men and women, I often somewhat jokingly say, especially to the guys in the room, now be honest, if I opened your fridge at your flat, would I find anything green? <laughs> or orange, or yellow. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so and I, I, I've actually tried to remind them that, again, amazingly, it sounds such a, a terrible thing to suggest, but I said, actually, for people who are time poor, it's just not commonly understood that those bags of frozen veg in the supermarket are actually very good. And you can take out a little bit and you can seal it up again and stick it back in the freezer. They don't go off in a short time. So there is a really, you know, it's like a, a public health gap in our understanding that some of those frozen um, vegetable products, for example, are a really good choice for mm. single person families or people on a low income and take out a handful per person and suddenly you've got a, a yeah. much more balanced diet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If you can keep the cold chain going in some cases. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. So it's good quality food. Mm. It's frozen at the right time and we're buying it for cheaper than we would fresh vegetables. So it's actually a good choice. Could I just ask you, Julian, to give us mm. that snapshot of how much we export mm. and how much we import. You're really good at summarising those things. Yeah, well, for, for I, I can give you the chapter and verse on the dairy because it's just one of those stories that is just so striking. So, so 95% of the dairy products that we produce are exported from this country, but actually globally that's providing only maybe 3 or 4% of the dairy products that people need. So it's, it seems to us as a massive proportion of what we do, but it's actually just a tiny little bit of what the world is needing because most people grow their own dairy products and, and only trade perhaps locally between uh, nearby countries. So when it comes to something like bananas, of course, 100% of bananas, although there's a few people who want to grow them in Northland, um, but currently 100% will be imported from offshore. So um, tea, the same goes, uh, not quite for tea now that we have a few ambitious um, Hamilton-based tea growers, but Again, it's probably 99% of our tea and all of our coffee are imported and we don't even think about that. It's just a product that you get at the supermarket. So, yeah. For things like kiwi fruit, for example, it's become an enormous industry and it's totally predicated on the assumption that um, affluent consumers around the world will want to buy this product. It's not being produced to feed our New Zealand population. It's kind of like, why would we do that? It's a it's a business. And so we'll grow kiwi fruit, sell them in affluent markets and 
a lot of people benefit, all those, not just who are the growers, but those who are the packers and the shippers. There's a whole range of farm input people. Our economy is extremely fortunate to have those big agricultural industries uh, really pouring money into our rural communities all around the country. So so we can't abandon um, conventional agriculture. That would be a ridiculous, you know, that would not be the right path for New Zealand. Of course, we can demand that it should be more sustainable. We don't want our waters um, polluted in the rivers. Uh, we don't want our air being um, ruined for our great-grandchildren. So, so we can keep the pressure on to make our production more sustainable, but we should be proud of our food products and the way we export them. But it's like a whole different story from does our population have access to good, mm. nutritious food? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> yeah. as a population of 5 million, we actually feed 40 million, you said, didn't yeah. around yeah. the world, which mm. is quite extraordinary. But like Julian says, uh, Veronica, there's a lot of issues that come together with it. When we look at food access in Aotearoa, what are some system changes that you tend to look to or you could see being helpful? Oh, that's a huge topic to unpack. Um, and again, I, I think our role in fair food is to um, be right in there and work alongside and inside those structures and those systems and to provide food to our community groups who have probably been are the most impacted by those kind of structural issues um, and, and to give them a voice to, to stand there. What what we see as the opportunity um, and just yeah, acknowledging Julian's point, we do have the best food producers in the world. We have the best food. Um, we have this worldwide reputation for, for kindness and community uh, we have an entrepreneurial spirit and um, and the environmental um, credentials to boot. So, you know, we should lead the way on how we do produce food sustainably and innovatively and, in, and probably more in a circular fashion. I mean, you know, we see all this great food coming through our space and, you know, there's opportunity here to upcycle it, to innovate, to collaborate and create social enterprises around it that can help with access, be about job creation, and I think it'll just be in time, as we've seen in America, this kind of category will, will take off. And I think um, it will only help help with access to more good food and, and not being, as in, food not lost out of the, out of the food chain. When uh, Veronica said circular system, I heard you murmur a yes um, in agreement, <laughs> Julian. C- can yeah. you explain what that means, a circular system? Yeah, we have um, some lovely Massey staff who are real experts in many of the areas that we're just touching on at the moment. So um, Professor Sarah McLaren, for example, is our um, someone who fully understands sustainable systems. One of her strengths is so-called life cycle assessment. So, so basically, my wife puts it that when a kid says, oh, I'll just throw it away, my wife looks at them and says, there is no away. There is no away, you know. (laughs) And that, that, to me, that's a lovely summary of what um, circular economies are about, that um, whenever we make something, whether it's a cell phone or a head of broccoli, we need to think, where is this eventually going to be used and disposed? And do I need to build into the sale price the cost of that disposal? Because I'm creating a load on the environment. 
environment by choosing to produce this cell phone or this head of broccoli. So do I need to build in the cost of eventually disposing of that? Um, and a real circular economy would have considered all of those issues so that perhaps we paid more for disposable consumer goods to cover the cost of collecting and then perhaps removing the precious metals that are inside there or whatever. <laughs> but these are huge structural changes. We're just glibly sort of diving over the top of at the moment. So, Which we have I, I, to by design. <laughs> yeah, got, yeah. But it, yeah. it does give us the opportunity to look deeper into things. And yes, we look at system change, but what personal choices can we make, like you're saying, around uh, what, we, what we consume and what we support? Mm. Um, so, look, New Zealand waste, uh, food waste, is a huge issue in New Zealand. I've got some stats here. Um, households alone waste about $2.4 billion of food <laughs> a year. And look, on the back of an envelope calculation, that's about 300,000 tonnes or 552 jumbo jets of food. It's enough to feed Dunedin for six years, people. Um, it's, it's a lot of food. So Julian's absolutely right. There is there is a role to play in education and, you know, how, how you plan your meals, how you stow your meals, how you cook, how you um, how you share the surplus that you've got. The, the fridge is your freezer. But it's also little, just really little things like the best before dates on food. Best before still means it's okay. You can still eat it, people. Um, milk is okay 20, 30 to 30 days later. Eggs are great two to three weeks later. Pasta, one to two years. So we see a lot. You know, we're, we're turning over about 150,000 meals a month where we are, what we do, rescuing and redistributing. And that's not including what we've got in the freezers or on the shelves. That's just in fresh fruit, vegetables, dairy, protein coming in. And it's the best before that are tripping a lot of people up. Um, so if you want to save money and time, take a relook at that. Trust your nose it knows that that's some really simple practical things you can do at home to, yeah. to save food. And Yeah, so um, best before is different from expiring. Exactly. Mm. Um, best before is about quality and you might lose a smidge. Expiry is about a, a health safety issue. In my mm. experience, toast it or fry it and it's fine, <laughs> usually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's important to just touch on that for a moment. Food safety is hugely important and it's something that we all absolutely presume has been taken care of by someone else. Mm. So we are morally outraged when anybody gets sick from something they've purchased in a supermarket. And so we should be. And we've had some terrible incidents in this country where fresh water is contaminated with listeria or something and it suddenly spreads through the community. So, so we must be really, really um, risk averse around food safety. But I love this idea that let's just be a little bit careful and make quite sure before we dispose, is this actually a food safety risk or is it mm. just, as you say, it's just that it happens to have passed its best before date. The two things are not at all the same. And so, unfortunately, our legislation, again, I suppose I'm grateful it has to be risk averse. So even feeding surplus food to animals has to comply with a whole heap of regulations. And if we can't be certain that this food is still safe, then why would we feed it to an animal? And so that in, in a sense, it encourages the careless waste of food because it's 
it's easier to do that than to check that it's still safe. But if we can encourage the responsible assessment of food before we make that disposal decision, people could say, oh, actually, this is compostable or actually this is still consumable as long as I use it in the next 24 hours, rather than saying, oh, it would be much more convenient for me simply to chuck it in the bin and get on with my life. So, so somehow both businesses and households, we need to just Again, it's education and support to provide that idea that, um, yep, food safety is vital, but just make sure that you're not using the argument of food safety to just carelessly dispose of something. That's that's not helpful. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that sounds very achievable. Yeah, and mm. in, in 10 years of operating, we've not had one food safety issue. Right. Um, so, yeah, we totally appreciate those standards, um, but we do know there is quite a bit of leniency in those best before dates, and, and we just encourage people to trust their nose as, as trite as that sounds. Um, it can be really impactful and save you a lot of money. So to end our quarter today, and it is a big question, if we look at our supply chain, what could we do to make it future-proof? Uh, you've talked about some ideas of education, of focus, of export, of thinking about circular systems. What are some things that could be done on any level, and this is big sky thinking, to ensure that our supply chain is more future-proof. Julian? Yeah, definitely for New Zealand, our global um, economic position depends on us continuing to be seen as not just a supplier of safe food, but of food that is sustainably produced. And we still have work to do there. So that is where the science investment is going. It's where the industries are working hard. They have to change the way we produce and grow things because of climate change. It's changing the, uh, the physical reality of our farms. Uh, but it's also important that we can demonstrate to those affluent consumers that what we do is long-term sustainable. Uh, that's an absolute no-brainer. So there's work to do there. <laughs> Kapai. Anything you'd like to add? I think we saw a lot of this in action last year, actually, and it's coming back to local resilience and community spirit. And New Zealand has got that in bucket loads and sharing our surplus and sharing what we have and just on a day-to-day level to get, you know, make things survivable for some some people. Um, I know that sounds really granular, um, but actually a whole lot of people doing that, that really adds up. And we saw that last year. And I think we shouldn't lose sense of, of, of that achievement um, and that spirit that that can protect us from shocks. No, oh, I like that because in our quarter today, you've talked about individual action, community, structure and government options at a global and also Aotearoa level as well. Thank you so much for our quarter today. You've been listening to Conversations That Can't, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. Hosted by me, Stacey Morrison. Produced by Jane Yee and Matthew McCauley, with music by Grayson Gilmore. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.